The Lord be with you. Let's, uh, we're, we weren't exactly sure. Can you turn me up? You can turn me up just a tad. I'm like wireless number three. Um, so we weren't exactly sure when we get started today because you never know like how long, how long communion is going to take based on how many people come to church. And so we had, a, we were kind of guessing on when we get started today. So uh, we'll shoot for getting done here by 11.50 or so. Uh, so you can grab your kids. I'd like to get you out of here. If you keep people at church past noon, you start to get a little antsy. Like, hey, it's lunchtime. But if you get out by 11.59, you feel like you have the whole day ahead of you, right? So that's the goal. A couple of announcements. Um, the uh, youth are lake, laking reeves. Some of us might say raking leaves on Saturday, November 12th. Uh, you can contact Pastor Bartons if you need that done. And also, if you want to join together with that, it's really open <clears throat> to everybody in the congregation, families, anybody wants to, to come along and help rake. Uh, we figured out, like, for years and years, we were approaching it, like, by way of efficiency. Let's just, if everybody has a leaf blower, we're, we're getting done really quick. The problem is, that's not really the point. Because everybody can do their own leaves, and you can actually pay to get it done. And, if, and in fact, if you're a senior, Naperville will come and do it for you. So we started thinking, the reason why we're doing this is to have the kids together, kind of building relationships. So we, we banned leaf blowers to make it harder and quieter so you can actually talk to the people next to your rake and leaves. So um, we, I, don't think we, I don't know if we have that many people who have actually asked for leaves. If you remember Esther Mosier, it was a notorious yard up on the, off of Ogden on the north side. She had like a billion gigantic oak trees and, and the leaves would be like knee high for the entire acre. And so the kids were there all day, but now she's moved. And so we need, we need uh, leaves to rake. So if you need some help, uh, please contact Pastor Bartons and we'll get over there. And if you wanna to join together again, bring your, bring your family and help rake, please do. On the same day, November 12th is uh, Crafter's Paradise. So November 12th, Saturday, nine to three, you saw the signs as you came into church. So that's here in the gym and uh, lots of different, all kinds of little crafty things you can purchase. And then we have lunch. It's a big fundraiser for our, for our ladies guild. And they actually kick back uh, all, of their, all the money they raise, they give to various different uh, causes in the church and school. Uh, but also like you'll see the banners, like the, the, big, the big white banners you see in the front of the church. Um, paraments, they, they kind of help the way they fund supporting all our, all our needs in the, um, in, the, in the sacristy, in the sanctuary. That's enough announcements for today. Now I want to talk a little bit about All Saints Day. So um, you can jump in in a variety of ways. Just start with the word saints. And we talk about it every year, but I mean, I think it's, it's good to refresh. What is a saint? Well, saint simply means a holy one, holy person. And uh, so that, which raises a bigger question, like what is, what is holy? It's, it's, holiness is one of those weird words that it, it's hard to describe it without like being, without using the word in the definition. Like holy, it's, it's like, you know, stuff that's holy. Well, that's because holiness is known only through God. It's, you could say holy, a holy, a holy thing is something that's been set apart by God for God, for his glory, for his purposes. 
And so we've got a, the root word uh, for, for saint is also, you'll recognize the root in the words, our word sanctification, which means to make holy, which is the, the work of the, the, the Holy Spirit in the third article of the creed, right? He's the, he is the Holy Spirit. His job is to make stuff holy, to sanctify. Um, we have a sanctuary. So it's a, it's a room that's been set apart. It's a holy space. Um, I used to, um, I used to get all bent out of shape talking about holy water in baptism. And, and again, that's like, it's, it's, it's healthy to kind of think through why. So when you hear that's holy water, what's your immediate thought? Catholics, vampires. <laughs> no, uh, but so the idea is like this. So we don't want to be, we don't want to think that so there's holy water, it's some kind of special water that, it's, that holds within itself some kind of magical powers. Um, but we, we would recognize that in, in, the, in the baptismal font, we recognize, we, we could say, there's a healthy way of saying it is, it's a holy, it is holy water, it's in a holy space, it's holy baptism. That is, the baptismal font that we have in the front of church uh, is, is a wonderful trip hazard, uh, but it's, it's not where we bring our dogs to wash our dogs, right? We, we don't grab the chalice and uh, use that for drinking um, Coca-Cola with the youth on Fridays or whatever. Those things have been set apart for holy purposes. That is to carry those things that make us holy. So the Lord's Supper, the Holy Communion, is, is carried in that, in that vessel. It's just a chalice. It's just a cup. And yet, what God puts in there is holy, and so we treat it with reverence. It is set apart for a specific purpose. Same with the room, the sanctuary. Um, it's, it's a room that's been set apart for a specific purpose, for us to worship in there. Um, we're not, we're not using it for just random purposes. In fact, uh, we, we have, we've been having this conversation as pastors and are trying to get more things out of the sanctuary that are not given to specifically holy purposes. So uh, a, little, a little heads up for you. The elders are going to be talking this, this uh, week, I think, about moving a voters assembly out of the sanctuary. As fun as it is to be um, to having people yelling at me right in front of the altar, <laughs> let's keep the kingdom separate, right? So the, the voters' assembly certainly have their place, but the Lord isn't delivering the forgiveness of sins in the voters' assembly. It's us doing the hard task of the left-hand kingdom, making decisions that are necessary and necessary for the church, but it's different than worship. Otherwise, you could just skip worship and come to the voters' assembly. It's obviously something different. So we're going to try to move the voters' assemblies out of the sanctuary to keep, keep what's going on in there specific to receiving, uh, receiving holiness, the stuff that's making us holy. Uh, and so, and the Lord calls us then holy ones. Now, we talked last week about the saints and from the Roman Catholic perspective, especially at the time of the Reformation, as those who are like in heaven. And yet, especially with the, at the time of the Reformation, and honestly still today, the Roman Catholic doctrine of the, a person has to be fully purified before they're actually able to get into heaven. So if you die with certain sins left unconfessed, then you actually go to the waiting list, purgatory, where you are to be purified. 
Hence, the purgatory, the heat associated with that, uh, the heat that makes, things, that makes metal pure. Um, so that's this idea of a per person needing to go to, pur to purgatory to be purified, to be made pure so that they can go to heaven. Problem is, our, our beef, the classic Lutheran move is, you, you flee to the lips of Jesus and, and for, for our, to give clarity on all these issues. So when Jesus says something like, it is finished, I would, I, would, um, I would argue with you that he meant it when he said that. And so that means there's nothing left for me to do. And so he's not like, Jesus didn't die on the cross to wait for me to finish the deal. So there is I mean, the whole concept of purgatory. It's not in the scriptures. He finished it. It's done. Uh, so he makes us holy well, by his death on the cross and then him delivering that cross to us and his chosen, his chosen instruments. So the proclamation of his word, uh, which makes us holy. All things are sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Uh, the Holy Communion and putting the, the, unto, the unholy us being touched by the holiness of God. So think, so think about like in the New Testament, if you, if you come across, if you're living in the first century and you, you come across a leper, what are you supposed to not do? Touch the leper. Why? Or even a dead body. If you, you run across, I mean, if you run across a dead body on the side of the road, your instinct is 911. <laughs> uh, but so you, a dead, a, a carcass, like in our case, squirrels. But you probably all drove past 50 dead squirrels on the way here. So you couldn't just like stop the car and, and scoop up the roadkill for lunch, like Keith is given to do sometimes, perhaps. And these Auburn fans <laughs> had to get one in there. Uh, <laughs> but you can't touch dead stuff because touching the unholy, unclean, makes you unclean. Notice what Jesus does. He flips it. So Jesus is going around touching the unclean and making it clean because he's God. So he's the holy one. So when he touches the unclean, it, the, the uncleanness doesn't jump onto him, but it's the other way around. The cleanness jumps on them. The holiness jumps on to them. So, uh, so when it comes to us being saints, the Lord Jesus makes us holy in these variety of ways in the divine service. Um, but him putting his name upon us, the holy name of God, we bear his name with us. Our problem is that we are still in our flesh. So you look in the mirror as one who is called a saint by the Lord Jesus, and yet our life that we experience and can measure and we remember and, and we're like everything is adds up to be not holy. It's the opposite of perfection. Um, even, the, even our righteous deeds are corrupted by our sin. So according to our sinful flesh, we know our sin, our, our, according to our flesh, we know our sin, which, is, which includes things like suffering and death and, and uh, sin and temptation and all that, shame, guilt. But according to our life of faith, we know that we are saints. So a life of faith is one that hears versus what is seen. So I look in the mirror, I see my life, I, I can recount my past, and I see all the works of the sinful flesh, and yet the Lord is speaking into that his holying words, that you are holy, you're forgiven. Jesus, Jesus only dies for sinners. So we are simultaneously saints and sinners as long as we're in our sinful flesh on this side of heaven. My sinful flesh that knows my sins, that knows my, that knows my, uh, my unworthiness, 
And then Jesus is looking at me and saying, no, you're covered in the holiness of God. I died to make you holy. Now that's pictured then for us in our reading from, from uh, Revelation 7, at the, the classic picture of heaven. It's, it's, uh, it's beautiful, this beautiful picture of the saints gathered around the throne wearing their white robes, waving their palm branches of victory. In fact, when you walk in the, with the back of the sanctuary, I encourage you to do it today if you haven't checked it out. There's not a service coming up, so really I can just keep going today, I guess. Uh, but there's not a service at 11. So on your way out, pop your nose in the sanctuary, look on your immediate left, there's a relatively new piece of artwork we bought from Ed Riojas, who's a Lutheran artist out of Grand Rapids, Michigan. And it depicts All Saints Day, basically. It's the resurrected Jesus above the lamb who is slain, empty tomb. There's, like, there's a crushed skeleton beneath him. Death is destroyed. And on one side, he's got all the saints in heaven. All these people of all tribes and races and languages all wearing their white robes and they're waving their palm branches. And it's like the elderly all the way down to little children. So tremendously comforting for those who have lost children. There's a little baby sitting, like looking up at the lamb, holding a, I mean, just imagine what a, what a 12 month old is gonna do, waving a palm branch around, it's the cutest little thing, in heaven. Then the other side is people just wearing their clothes like us. It's the, it's the saints on earth of all times and nations and places spread out, all worshiping the same, the same lamb. All these saints gathered together. Some are fully sainted in heaven, not because of the clothes that they're wearing on their own, but they've been clothed with the holiness of Jesus. That's the whole thing with the white robes, being, being covered in his holiness, his righteousness. And, then, and that's distinguished then from the saints on earth who are still in their sinful flesh. Rich, you had a question. Yeah, somebody was asking about that the other day, and Barton's answered it well. Um, I walked away before it, he finished what he was saying, so I don't know the answer to your question. Um, <laughs> how, how, how old is the history? In fact, he was talking to you. I think he was talking to you. Did he, yes. Did, do you remember the answer? Yes. Not what, how old? How, is that still the practice today, to be a, to be a saint in the Catholic Church? You have to be... Well, at least to be recognized as a saint and celebrated on earth. And we want to make that distinction too, because even in their doctrine, you can't, it's hard to get away from um, the clear scriptural proclamation on certain things, right? There is, we, they would say people go to heaven and in heaven there are saints. The problem is how certain can we say that about people now? And where we can't say things certain with certainty, we only bring doubt, which leads to despair. So. Jesus is constantly trying to chase away uncertainty and doubt. So we say things with certainty. He put his name on you and promised to be with you always. He's covered all of your sin. You're a saint. He said so. It's up to him, not up to you. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, so we don't recognize, we, we actually have, we have saints days. We recognize like St. Peter, St. Paul, St. Matthew. Now these are all obviously biblical saints. And what we're, when we do celebrate saints' days, we're not recognizing what, a, what an awesome guy Peter was. It's, it's just that Peter is a great example of us who are in heaven, not because of anything that Peter deserves, because Peter is, the, he's, like the, he's like this major pillar of the Christian church, and yet he's the guy who like abandons Jesus, 
get behind me, Satan, was said to Peter, right? So Peter's a great example of us, how we, one day we're, 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 we have this great faithfulness and this zeal for the Lord, and the next day we're, we're returning back to the sins of our, uh, the, the devil's tempting us to sin and to doubt in various ways, and then he turns us back to himself in repentance. That's the Christian life. So we recognize St. Peter because of the faith that Peter was given to confess. Um, even there in, in Matthew 16, um, when Jesus, in the context of when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, it's because he had recognized, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, you didn't come to that conclusion on your own. God gave you that. And by the way, the Son of God is going to have to die on the cross. And Peter said, no, 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 no. You don't want to go that way, Jesus. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because you're trying to have Jesus without the cross. That's the way of the devil. Anyway, so we recognize the saints uh, in the church. It gives us an opportunity to light the baptism candle. Uh, you probably don't even notice that. Um, what we should probably start doing is making sure we schedule our shortest acolytes. Because the baptism candle is really hard. Because uh, if you see it from above, the candle is like a couple inches deep. So you have to actually get the flame down in there. And you got to be really patient to get it out, which would make that process really uncomfortable to watch, which drives home the point of the importance of that candle, right? So we have a short acolyte struggling for 10 minutes to light the candle. It really drives home. <coughs> Excuse me. We only light that candle at a couple key days, though. Jesus didn't say to light the candle. It's irrelevant. But the point is, the point is what the candle is reminding us about. We light the candle at a baptism. So I call it a baptism candle, but really it's technically it's the Paschal candle. It's the Easter candle. We light it at the Easter vigil and we actually process in. If you've ever been to the Easter vigil, we, we install a new candle on Saturday night at sunset and we process the new candle in Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, we, we remember the wounds of Jesus. And we process that candle into the sanctuary because, and then we, we in, the, in the Easter vigil service, we hear all these beautiful Old Testament stories that are your story. Through holy baptism, you are made a part of Israel. You are, you are with Jesus on the cross. You're with Jesus in his resurrection. You're with Israel coming through the Red Sea. They're part of your people. So your, your identity is now in Christ, Right? That's what's signified there in that candle on Easter Sunday. But then we go and we light it whenever there's a baptism. Anytime the baptism is because it connects baptism to Easter. Which Easter is all about the resurrection of Jesus, new life in Jesus, new creation in him, heaven. And so in baptism, we're delivering that to the, to the child or whoever's being baptized. What's really cool is some, I can't remember the church body who does this. This is like somewhere in Europe, but probably Eastern Orthodox variant. Uh, the church, they, when there's a baptism, they actually process in with the baby in a casket. That's kind of morbid. <laughs> People will start scheduling less baptisms at Bethany. We're going to go to somebody else's church. But the idea is, before, without baptism, we are nothing but dead. And so after, then we take the baby out of the casket and we put the Lord's name on him and cast out death and we join the resurrection of Jesus to the baby. And now when, when the next time this, this little human is in a casket again, it's not a concern. This death is, this baby has already died, the only death that matters. Big D death has been crushed by Jesus. And so now the next time the casket comes down the aisle, it's not a concern. 
So the baptism candle is lit at, at Easter and, and um, at baptisms, and then again at funerals. So all three are tied together. So at the funeral, what, by the way, what do we put on top of the casket at a funeral? The pole, which when you, oh, when you die, you're not gonna argue with me much because you won't be around, but your, your kids will argue with me and your well-meaning children because there's lots of different traditions of, of what, what they expect out of a funeral, often formed by movies or whatever. Um, if, if I want a big picture of you at your funeral, but I want it not in the sanctuary, because if it's up to just you, we're not, you're not here. We're not, we're not talking about you today. It's, we're, we're in this sanctuary now because you're in Christ. So what we do is when you walk in the, you walk in the narthex for the visitation before a funeral, we have the flowers and the big picture of whoever and the, and the casket there, which now we've moved the casket just underneath that picture I was telling you about, the resurrected Jesus with the saints in heaven, which now includes this person here. Um, so, uh, but then at the, at the start of the funeral, we close the casket for the last time. It's very moving. It's a very touching thing. There's a special prayer given by the pastor, the Lord who created this body, the Lord who redeemed this body by his blood, and the Lord who sanctified this body by the Holy Spirit, keep and preserve this body unto life everlasting. And until we sing, when the, when the angels come down and, and raise, all the, all, the, all the people are raised up, the souls are reunited with the body, so keep this body safe and peaceful sleep. Close the casket, and then whatever you spent the $10,000 on this really awesome casket, whatever, no one's going to see it, though, in the sanctuary because we cover it up with a gigantic white robe, which is actually symbolic of the white robes in heaven. All the saints in heaven wearing the white robes. Right, waving the palm branches of victory. They're there not because of their own worthiness or their own merit. They're covered in the righteousness of Christ, the holiness of Christ. They are fully saints. So we cover it up. Um, and then also I mean, for those who do cremation, which is not the preferred, the preferred way, uh, but, some, but some people choose to go that way, we still do. I mean, the, the problem is the actual Paul that we have is like, will roughly cover the size of a small car. It will definitely cover a Prius, I think. But if you got a little urn, it's kind of like, so we have too much, too much. Uh, so we just use a smaller one. We have a smaller, uh, it's called a pall. We cover it up with, because again, it's all about covering the this, this symbolism of being covered with the righteousness of Christ. Um, so that's saints. So we are saints um, in, through holy baptism. And yet we still in our sinful flesh until the last, until the last day when our, or when we die, finally, we're, and we're with Jesus in heaven. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So our souls go to be with Jesus. Our bodies are reverently put in the ground until the last day when our bodies raise up, are perfected, and our bodies and souls come back together. Beautiful hymns today, very moving, um, especially if you sung one of these at a funeral. For All the Saints is classically sung at funerals, but there's this particularly, particularly one stanza I want to draw your attention to. Um, where is it? Stanza five. And when the fight is fierce, the warfare long. So this, this, the picture is this, the earthly, the earthly church, the earthly Christian in this life is, is, is viewed as a, as a fight. That is, 
the, the sinful flesh warring against the saintly flesh, the devil bringing his temptations. We're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, uh, death attacking us on all sides, causes to despair and all the rest. So we can see life as a fight. Uh, it's even pictured that way in Luther's mighty fortress hymn. So he, we're on this battlefield and yet he, he holds the field victorious. So he's ultimately the, the victor. But we are, we're in this war, we're wearing the, we're wearing the armor of God. To, we're called to stand firm in the faith. We're wearing all this armor that the New Testament lays out for us. So when the fight is fierce and the warfare long, that is when it starts to feel like this is getting to be too hard, whether in the time of persecution or just a long life, I was talking to um, um, whatever, Marge Staffeld, our oldest member, a couple weeks back. And she'll recount, she has like, she has children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And she's seen like everybody die. And, and her life has seen a, a significant amount of suffering and trials and so forth. And yet she hasn't lost her, her hope and her joy. But she, she recounts some of these things to you. It's like you can see this long-suffering fight. It's been a fierce warfare. And then, so when the fight is fierce, the warfare long steals on the ear that as we hear this distant triumph song and hearts are, hearts are brave again and arms are strong, hallelujah. This distant triumph song, it's this the picture of if you're in a fight, if you're in this battle, this earthly battle, and then you hear from a distance that your army has taken, has taken the city and you hear the trumpets of victory being played by your team, your, your, your side of the war. We've won. The horns of victory are going off and yet we're still fighting right here. And you're, you're still kind of like having to take down these guys and you're still in the midst of battle. And yet think about how this like renewed zeal, because we've won. The energy kind of fills you up because you know that victory has, has been done. And that's this picture of heaven for us is though, so we're in this, we're in this battle. We're in the, and sometimes it feels like it's hard, the persecution, the trials, the suffering physically, uh, the temptation and all the rest. And then we're reminded today of this distant triumph song. God cracks open heaven with Revelation 7. He gives us this little picture of heaven, of the saints in heaven before the throne. And, um, and then it says, and hearts are brave again and arms are strong. And I always thought that that was like talking about at the resurrection, then when, the, when the, the person who's dead is gonna have strong arms again, well, I mean, that's certainly the case, but that's not what this is talking about. It's talking about you and me in the suffering, being encouraged by this, by this revelation of heaven, the picture of the saints who, who wave the palm branches of victory. That's the thing that strengthens us, giving us brave hearts to endure the trials before us and the, and the arms strong to get through the fights, to serve our neighbor and with the time the Lord gives us here. Um, and then you get the beautiful the resurrection um, pictures in that hymn. So that's, maybe that's a, plenty of time on that. Any, any, um, any questions on, on all saints? Yeah. So you mentioned several things that will come according to me, which was the act of these vessels that we, I don't want to say revere, but we hold a special account because of the acts that they are like the chalice, like the baptismal candle, even ourselves. These are all representations of vessels. So is it safe to say then that 
we ourselves and, and these other items are just vessels, and because we have, in our, in our situation, Christ working to us in the praise, these other items in specific traditions, such as the sacrament, holy baptism, and stuff, that that's what gives them reverence, not the actual items themselves, not our bodily vessel ourselves, but because we accept Christ, that we are relevant and we are special and we are of an entire routine for that very reason. But without that acceptance and these other acts, that you can just say that they are just basic things that are sometimes disordered. Yeah, well, we want to kind of fight against... What's that? You want me to repeat everything you just said? <clears throat> Too bad. No, no. No, so the, the basic idea there is um, these, the vessels, the vessels of the chalice, um, the, the vestments the pastor wears, I mean, all these, all these physical things, they're seemingly empty of any value in and of themselves, but it's, it's that which they carry gives them their significance. Um, can we then also say the same thing about ourselves as those who are, our temples of the Holy Spirit. Is that kind of where you're going with that? Yeah, I, I mean, when you, I, I was taking a correlation because you, you look at your, everybody talks about, we talk about the human body and we shed our human bodies when we go ascend into heaven. So then the body can almost be thought of it the same way. It's just oh, I see. No, I'm going to shatter that. Okay. Oh, good. So, um, so can, can the body be thought of as this, like right now the, the chalice has a purpose. And it's holy because it carries the body and blood of Christ. But ultimately, the child, I mean, once we re at the resurrection, the chalices are all kind of burned up in the eternal fires, and we don't care about it. We won't, we'll be standing in heaven. I don't need the chalice anymore. Same with my body, right? Just kind of like it's this empty shell that's thrown aside. This is the heresy called Gnosticism, and uh, it's rampant today. And it's been rampant since the beginning of Christianity, frankly. It's this idea that the fit, no, behind, so the basic idea is that the body, the physical realm, is bad, inferior. The spiritual realm is that which is to be aspired toward. And that's ultimately the best, the better, the ideal. Now you can see easy applications for that because a person I am, if I, if I feel like I'm a woman and, a man, and my body doesn't line up with that, the body is irrelevant. Because the spirit, I know it's not where you're going, we're yeah, coming back. I don't know. But this is why, it's, this is ultimately what Gnosticism is, though. Like, my body is this just shell for the, the real me, what's inside of me. And, but my body is ultimately nothing, it's discarded. That's not the case in the scriptures. So we got, the Lord actually created this body, specifically, and will be redeeming and resurrecting this body, has redeemed and will be resurrecting our bodies so that's why we treat our bodies reverently. We place the bodies in the ground like seeds. Um, and the body, the body itself, though corrupted by sin, to be sure, hence the death and the disease and the physical ailments that troubled us our entire life, that's all consequence of sin. But ultimately, that's going to be purified on the last, perfected on the last day, our bodies. So there's a significant value that, that, our, that we are to have of our bodies over and against what our world is saying, where the body is, it's just a shell. It's, that's not, have you ever stood next to somebody at a casket? Um, well, I would argue with you that probably every time you've stood next to somebody next to a casket, though you'll hear the words, that's not, that's not them. I'm like, well, then who is it? Where's the body? I'm in the wrong place. I mean, exactly. I got to rewrite my, my sermon. Of course it's them. 
the, the, the soul is with Jesus, but this is their body, which is why the body's here now. We're going to reverently put it on the ground, and the body's going to be resurrected on the last day and purified and perfected. And interesting thing there, um, the, the, um, the third and fourth grade class, like Miss Clausen and, and Miss Hans' classes, are, I pop in there every now and then to answer questions. And those kids are obsessed with heaven. Um, and good for them. I guess there's worse things to be obsessed with. But it puts me in a weird spot because I can only say so much. Pastor, in heaven will we... I'm like, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't been. But the, the, we know what we know from the scriptures. But here's this thing. When you tell a kid that... So the body, that's, the body that you die in is the body that's going to be resurrected. And that the, the scriptures leave... I mean... We only have limited pictures, but it seems like the body will be resurrected. The body that dies is the body that's resurrected, though purified and perfected. And then we live eternally. So then, okay, so if, I, if I'm 99 when I die, so, so when, if, I'm, if I'm 11 years old and I'm thinking about great-grandma's 105-year-old body with all of its the challenges that we know grandma and grandpa are facing, right? Do I want to spend eternity like that? And then it just keeps getting, am I going to keep getting older in heaven? So like, I'm 11 now, my dad's 50 and he's always complaining about his knees hurting or his back. Grandma and grandpa are super old and they're hurting all the time. And it's just going to keep getting worse for eternity? I don't want to go to heaven. So to, to, to cut that, I mean, I think a really awesome picture is if, if you think about, if you think about like this line as, as death, what like in our, in our lives, we kind of start when we're young as infants and we kind of, we hit our, our twenties, kind of getting our physical peak. And then we get into our thirties, we start losing our hair. And then you get to your 40s and your arthritis starts kicking in. And then, you know, you're in your 50s and 60s and all of a sudden, you know, st stuff isn't working like it used to. And then we're getting older and older and older and our bodies start to hurt and we, we, we even get shorter. And we get closer and closer to death. And then we die. So as the closer, the closer that you get to death, the worse things get. I mean, even in this picture, like... A baby, there's, there's, a, there's a reason why there's a saying, your skin is as smooth as a baby's bottom, right? Because it's super smooth here, but then it just gets worse. The closer, so as we get older and older, we're getting closer and closer to death, and things are getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Now, here's what's so beautiful about this picture of eternity. As we're resurrected, and we continue to live on eternally, every day that we live is another day further and further away from death. So like now, we think about every day is, a, is this like decline toward this inevitable suffering and our bodies, like we, we, we associate age with things getting worse. Just our houses, our cars, everything. But this is the picture of eternity. So this, when you actually think about eternity as being marked as every year that passes is a year that I'm, I'm further away from death. 
It's the way Superman, you know, like with kryptonite, that gets closer to kryptonite, it gets weaker, weaker, weaker. The further we are away from death, the better things get for all eternity. Now, I, I did raise a, a quick question there on what do we do with the, the baby, the, the, the one-year-old who dies. So is a, is a one-year-old eternally a one-year-old? Um, it doesn't seem to be that that's the case. I mean, Pastor Emilius, he's the one who's he's answered all these questions in my mind when he did his heaven conference, which I've heard like four times now. But the idea would be uh, we're, we, are, we are created to age. Like we're moving in a particular direction. There is this like ultimate age that we, that we are designed to be. Probably with Adam and Eve uh, were, were initially built to be 30, whatever, ready to go, fully formed. So if, I'm a, if there's a baby who dies, the, the comfort, it would seem to be the case that um, you got these parents, well, it put it as a picture. The, Ed Riojas, who did the artwork in the back of the sanctuary that I mentioned earlier, he, uh, at his church, he's lined the walls with this resurrection scene, all leading up to this, it's actually our, alt, our that picture there is the altarpiece of that church. So the entire walls, all the way to the back of the sanctuary are people coming out of the ground. But not in the sense of like the waking dead zombies, but like on the last day, people you know, busting out of the caskets. And there's like these beautiful pictures of like these babies who are trying to like toddle and they're getting scooped off the ground by these adults. So what, what comfort for those who have lost children? Um, it's not that, there's, there's not a reason, uh, for me, I don't, I don't see a reason for us to think that, like if you lost a child who was two, and then you get to heaven, and that two-year-old is gonna be 30, and they come and introduce you as, hey, dad, it's me, I'm 30 now. I, it would seem to be the case that at the resurrection, we're, we're resurrected in the, at the age that we died, and we mature, whatever that, whatever that maturity date is. So the one-year-old, two-year-old is raised a two-year-old, and it grows to maturity because growing to maturity isn't sinful. So this is heaven, is the parent who's lost a child potentially getting to raise a child to maturity without all the burdens of sin. That is, without having to counsel the kid about all these hard things that we're having to navigate now. Now that's the hard part of parenting is trying to shape these kids and form them up in a way that uh, protects them from, from temptation and sin and death and suffering and all these tragic things and they'll all be gone. So a lot of parents find comfort in that picture. The reason why we think that way is because Jesus, Jesus was raised in the body that went in the ground. And so, we, so that's, our, that's our like thought is that the bodies that are put in the ground are the bodies that are raised up and then they, they mature. I mean, that's, that's kind of... It's well-based speculation, you know. Any other comments or questions? I never really answered your question. I got off there. But the whole, the whole Gnostic idea would just be this general, we are, we got to fight against this, this thought that the spiritual is better than the, than the physical and that we, we want to hold the, we want to hold the physical in high regard because God does. why the body has what is physically here is because of 
sacrifice being present through that body, I guess, the next one you get in the meaning. And because of the Holy Spirit and everything, grace working through the body as opposed to it just being a human body. Well, it makes it so. On the other, well, I want to say we we recognize that all life is sacred, as we have been. We're all we're all formed in the um, image of God. That's like the whole pro-life argument. Is like even a child and a non-Christian child, a non-Christian family, whatever. They're still they're still created in God's image, and so we still recognize the holiness of that individual as a created being of God. We also recognize that outside of faith, that's, I mean, that's not really what this, it's not, it's not whole yet. Outside of, we're designed to be in, in fellowship with, with Jesus eternally. And so apart from that fellowship with Jesus, we're not actually, we haven't reached our full fullness, our full fullness. So, um, so but we can still recognize a value in the individual to be sure. But we recognize when we talk about somebody as holy and righteous, it's not because they themselves are holy and righteous because their list of good works, maybe that gets to what you're saying. It's because Jesus has given them all his good works. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so um, <laughs> next Sunday, actually, we're getting into the last, the end of the church year. So next Sunday is like this really awesome, uh, it's the, if you remember the last days, the last days of the church year are kind of, the, the readings follow the trajectory of the, of like the life of the church. So we have the beginning of the church at Pentecost with the word going out and the church growing. And then the end of the church, the, the end of the time of the church is the return of Christ. So you get some really, some really semi, semi-creepy readings. Next week is that week. So if you want to freak out your neighbors who like never been to church, like I've never been to church before. I grew up in this, like maybe think about bringing them next Sunday. Next Sunday is like the end times warning stuff. But you get this, one of the great hymns is like, and flames on flames shall ravish earth. This is really, and we're singing jolly. But it puts the, it puts the, 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 the hope in the right place. But at the resurrection, um, on, the, on the last day when Jesus comes back, the bodies of the dead are raised. But see, Jesus formed the body from the dirt to begin with. And at death, we actually say ashes to ashes. So there's, a, there's actually a right, if you've been to a funeral, um, the pastor, if, if, it's, if we can find it, because they do such a good job of covering, like you've got the big hole in the ground and the casket is sitting there ready to be lowered and they cover everything with like AstroTurf. But there's a part where we like, we get a handful of dirt and we, we, we put it on this perfect casket. It's like a $10,000 casket with beautiful flowers. We get a handful of dirt and throw it on top. Dirt to dirt, ashes to ashes. Uh, the Lord who created this body from the dirt, the body's going to, we recognize the body's going to return to the dirt anyway. So cre- cre- cremation, like, just fast forwards the process. But our, our point is mostly, it's an external confession of we're putting this body in the ground, ideally. I mean, obviously, we have Christian freedom to, to not do that, but we typically put the body in the ground because we know the body's going to re- come up out of the ground. And we, re- we try to dissuade like spreading of ashes, only like 
Cremations and spreading ashes, these are, these are things historically, not currently, and so I know like half of you have all like cremated a loved one and I'm not telling you, I'm not trying to burden your conscience. Historically in the early church, Christians were intentionally burned to emphasize, oh yeah, you think your God's so great, see if he can raise this body from the dead. So it's like over and against the confession of the resurrection of the body, bodies were burned to stick it to the Christians and spread the ashes around. See if, you can, see if you can put this puzzle back together, God. And think to Monty Python, the Holy Grail. What do you do with witches? Burn them. Burn the witches. Why? More witches. <laughs> <laughs> but why do you burn the witches? Because they weigh as much as a duck, right? No, because they, the idea... The idea is that this association with the, the occult, the non-believer. So you don't bury, you don't bury this pagan. You only bury the Christians. Only Christians get a Christian burial. Everything else is burned. Because that's what you do. That's, they're actually just, that's where they're going to be burning now anyway. So burn them eternally. Burn them now, burn them eternally, right? Now that's historically. Obviously today we just kind of recognize in the situation that we're in, um, no one's, hopefully no one's giving the confession that this body isn't going to raise from the dead anyway. So let's just burn it. No, it's going to raise from the dead. But there's financial considerations and practical considerations and all the rest. I strongly encourage all of you to not spread ashes if at all possible. Because um, the idea would be we put, we put dad in the ground here and we, we can come back and visit dad. And you can say, I'm visiting dad, because it's his body, just as we did at the casket where you say, this isn't mom, mom's gone. No, this is mom, and we're putting mom in the ground. This is mom. So you can come, and you can go talk to mom. She can't hear you, but it's, it's an important part of our grief to be able to talk to our loved ones, to know where they are. And you know what? In the last day, she's coming back. So don't put a padlock on the casket. Make it a little easier. You know? Great, great questions. I know it raises a lot of, a lot of end times, resurrection stuff. And so next Sunday, we'll have the last, uh, next to last Sunday, of the church year. We'll look forward to that reading. Uh, hopefully finish, <laughs> get, start looking at Luke 13 and finish it next, next week. Any other last minute stuff? Good. Well, so next Sunday, we're back on regular schedule, 830 service, 1130 service, Bible study in between. The Lord be with you.